Always good to look out at each of you. It's good to be here with you. This morning we're continuing our series on 1 Peter. We began a new series on 1 Peter last week. And what we're talking about when we look at this letter Peter wrote later in his life and, of course, pretty far down the road in his ministry is we're talking about the kind of community that Jesus is building among us, the community that he calls us to be. And so last week we talked about how we're a community of hope, that we're fundamentally composed of the hope that's been given to us. And this morning what we're going to talk about is that we're a community of holiness, that hope, our hope leads to holiness. And I think what you'll find as we look at First Peter is this recurring call to vigilance in the faith. And it's hard to look at that without, um, without seeing that as informed by all the ways Peter learned vigilance from Jesus himself. Like the ways that Peter watched Jesus as he remained true to his purpose for coming into the world and, uh, and true to his relationship with his own father. And the ways Peter heard as Jesus continued to point to the life that was coming as the anchor of our hope. And also all the ways that Jesus was patient and forgiving and even restoring with Peter when he failed in these ways. Listen, that story of the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't just a failure to understand what was going on. It was also a failure and the vigilance required to trust Jesus, even when it felt like things were going sideways. And so what we have to reckon with, I think, is the truth that what does our faith look like when times are difficult? And how does it endure in times of difficulty and in times of joy? How does it sustain us? And these are important questions, and I think in trying to answer them, we really need to understand the hope that we have. And we'll need to look at where hope leads us. And so that's what we're talking about this morning, is where hope takes us as a community of God's people. And for that, we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read verses 13 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 
And since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm uh, oh, Father, we come together and we stand before you and we sit are, uh, arranged under the authority of your word right now. And so we ask as we look at your words that you would speak to us, that Holy Spirit, you would be at work right now in each of our hearts, proclaiming truths to us that we need to hear. I pray that you would melt us, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us and encourage us, remind us of our hope. And show us where hope leads. I pray that you would take me, your servant, standing before your people now. And let every word I say be in fidelity with your word. That you would be honored and these people would be served. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you ever want to do a deep dive on something totally inconsequential. That uh, will probably make you laugh. And, uh, but may make you cry. It might, it might give you flashbacks. You need to go home this afternoon and you need to Google Iowa State Fair Mom Calling Contest. I'm not kidding. Mom Calling. So they have, they, they, uh, like, these videos have, made, have gone a little bit viral over the last week or so. But apparently this has been going on for many, many years uh, all you have to do is you have to be a child to enter, and, uh, and it's a free. It's free to enter, and what they do is they take these child contestants and bring them up to a microphone in front of a crowd full of hundreds of people, and they demonstrate for the crowd what it looks like when they call out for their mom. And, uh, and you know what? You can't help but think about the families that are enjoying these cries from their children. And uh, you can't help but imagine uh, this little one in another part of the house, or maybe they're outside or somewhere just doing something by themselves or with a friend, playing, 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 and uh, suddenly they have a question that comes to their mind, and, uh, and it must be answered immediately. And they're not moving. In fact, they're calling for their attention, and it's like something's going on developmentally. I'm sure it is. It's like they're stuck. They can't do anything else until this question is answered. And so some of these cries are shrill. Some of them are loud. Some of them are, uh, are really, really funny. Some of, <laughs> some of them are, are just kind of crazy. And I think it's kind of therapeutic, actually, if you're a parent of children, to look at that. Because no matter what it looks like, uh, in your home, I will tell you that you will find out there's always a place where it's a little more loud. And there's always a place where it's a little more demanding, uh, maybe a little more urgent. And if you're a parent of an older child, it might, even, it might even lead you to miss the days when you were the first person that your children came to when they had a question on their mind. But there's nothing like the urgency of a child's voice, is there? Nothing like it. And that's the one thing I really saw in each one of these videos from these children that were crying out for their mom is that no matter what it sounded like and no matter what it looked like, 
each one of them seemed to carry this confident expectation that their cry would be heard and that it would be answered. As we look at this passage, the roles are flipped. We're not the parents hearing the calls of our children, although we know exactly what those sound like. What we are is the children listening to the call of our father. And in verse 14, Peter calls us obedient children. And the calls of our father to us again and again is a call to hope. In fact, Zechariah the prophet called his people, called God's people, prisoners of hope. And after spending the past 12 verses that we looked at last week, explaining, outlining for us the sheer grandeur of our hope that's been given to us, Peter says, therefore, you see that first word in verse 13 is therefore. It's like he's saying, because you are a people of hope, this is where hope leads you. Hope is calling to us. What does it look like to respond to its call? Where does hope lead us? And in this passage, pretty predictably, I'll say that hope leads us in three different ways. <laughs> three different ways. We see Peter explain to us that the, the way of hope, the way of hope, he gives us the case for hope. And finally, he lays out some of the results of hope or the outflow of hope. First, the way of hope. I think there are two things that we need to attend to in this passage. Um, because First, he talks to us about what hope looks like in our minds. And then he talks to us about how hope affects our lifestyles. So hopeful minds, hopeful lives is the way I'm going to go at this. Hopeful minds. Look at how Peter talks about the mind in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's learning. He's teaching us that it's important that we need to learn to think with hope, almost as if that's just not natural to us. But he says, learn to think as if there is grace, profound grace coming to you. Get your minds ready now. And that, uh, that term, preparing our minds for action, is pretty vivid. And it actually is rooted in a Semitic idiom. Uh, it means, it's literally translated to gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up, the, now that's graphic, isn't it? Gird up the loins of your mind. And what it's doing, that might sound a, a little weird to us because we don't, uh, we don't wear robes. I haven't spotted a robe amongst us this morning. Um, but what it is, it, is it's riffing off the act of tucking up a long robe into your belt. So that you're prepared to move when called upon. And, and that phrase is almost undoubtedly an allusion to something that we see in Exodus chapter 12. When God was liberating his people from slavery, he told them to, this quote, eat your final meal, which was the Passover, right before God liberates them from slavery. Eat your final meal with your sandals on and your loins girded. Eat your meal, anticipating grace to come and be ready to move when called upon. Grace was coming to them, helping them in ways that they couldn't help themselves, and he told them to move with haste. He was saying, your hope informs your thinking, and he calls them to be prepared to act out of that hope. 
And, uh, and while none of us are, uh, are talking about girding up our loins, I know we can certainly identify with what Peter is talking about here because he's telling us that our hope, the hope of Jesus, is the dominating, controlling mechanism of how we should think. Hope. Hope is the dominating, controlling mechanism of how we should think. And because how we think informs how we live, it just makes sense that Peter would go on to describe what hopeful lives would look like. He tells us we need to resist what he calls the passions of our former selves, our for, the passions of our former ignorance before we knew Christ. Because he who called you is holy, we also must be holy in all our conduct. Hope leads to holiness. Hope leads to holiness. Now just think about that for a second. Think about how that runs almost completely uh, opposed to just about every behavior modification theory that's out there right now. Like, this is a, this is a fun exercise. Maybe it's not so fun. I don't know. But, but, but read a book about um, raising a child uh, and how, how you're trying to shape how, who somebody becomes. Or read a book for yourself about how to become a better person, like, you know, becoming more patient or learning to kick an addiction or just, you know, living out your truer self, a self-help book. And try to identify the methods that use hope in something else as a viable change, as a viable method of changing who we are. Just see if you can find that out there. I don't think you will. But what we see here is that our hope attaches us to God. He makes us a part, of our, a part of his family. And so our hope changes us to be like God. Be holy. For I am holy. And, and this should make some sense to us. Because we are, all of us, dramatically impacted by the relationships that we have. Our values are shaped by our relationships. Our preferences are shaped. Our restaurants, our favorite restaurants are shaped by our relationships. Our accents are shaped, like that's how accents work. They're shaped by the people that we're around, that we listen to and that we speak to. All of that works out that way. How could we have a relationship with God, the most important relationship in each of our lives, and not see that dramatically affect what our lives look like? And it's a mistake to think that we could be attached to God and not become more like him. That is the work that he's about in your life. He's affecting our thinking, and he's affecting our lives. And, and when we belong to God, I will say everything is on the table. There's nothing about you or your life that he is not giving attention to. Our habits, our values, our priorities are affected. Nothing is off limits to God. So let me ask you something. Are you okay with that? Are, are you okay with, with God take, taking an interest in our lives that tell us that we're serving him primarily and not ourselves? Are, are, you, uh, are you prepared for your hope in the grace that's coming to you to shape how you understand your own time and the way you spend it? 
or, or to shape how you think about your own money and how you spend it, or uh, how you relate to the people that you work with, or how you relate to the people that you live with, or, uh, or if I may be so bold, how you think about those people that you don't like very much, or those people that you avoid. How does hope How does the hope that you have in Jesus affect all of these things that we are managing tightly all the time? Does your hope in Jesus affect the areas of your life in a meaningful way? That's a question for us all, and it's a good question. But let me tell you something. If if hope is going to do that, then it better be a big hope. It needs to be a transcendent and powerful hope. And that's why it makes complete sense that after that that call to us that can be a hard call for us to wrap our heads around, Peter goes on and starts to lay out the case for our hope. He reminds us yet again, after spending all this time earlier explaining hope to us, he then goes, like he slides, it's like he can't even help himself. He begins to slide back into explaining why we are a people of hope. And, uh, and, and he lays out two different things that I just want to name here. The first thing he does when he talks about our case for hope, is he, lay, he gives us an incredible tension that we can feel when we start to think about it. He talks about how our judge is our dad. Our judge is our dad. Uh, verse 17, if you call on him as father, now that word father could be formal or informal, okay? It could be, but really what Peter's talking about is the way that we pray to our father with a sense of assumed intimacy, okay? And if we call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now that's an interesting verse and it can, it can be kind of hard to sort through because he gives us two ways of understanding God. God is our loving and attentive father whom we have access to. This is the one that we pray to and rely on for help and we assume his care for us is also this impartial judge. One who who can't even be persuaded by his own affections for you. And even though he loves you, he can't be bribed. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that as we stand before an impartial judge, we're toast. That we, we haven't earned his good judgment. That, the, that, that all the things that we've done and all the things that we've thought and so many of the, the ways that we live deserve a judgment against us. And so if he's true to his character, as we see in this passage, then he must hold us accountable. How do we resolve this? Because he loves us as, his, as our father, he resolves it for us. There is no payment that we can make to resolve any of that. There is no amount of money. There's, there's no amount of good deeds. Uh, there's no amount of generosity of life and poverty of spirit that can resolve the tension of the judgment that we deserve before an impartial judge. There's nothing we can do. In fact, there's a story of Peter in Acts 8 where Simon the magician offered Peter money in exchange for the Holy Spirit. And Peter was offended. He said, may your money perish with you. You can't buy the gift of God with money. 
Nothing can do, in order to redeem a life, a life must be given. A life must be given to ransom our lives. And that's exactly where Peter goes in verse 18. We're not ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a spotless lamb. That is atonement language. That is sacrificial language. When the people would come before the Lord asking for forgiveness and grace from the Father, they would bring a lamb. And they would slaughter the lamb. And, the, and, and what they would understand in looking at that is that this, this lamb's blood for my blood. This lamb's life for my life. Listen, when we look at Jesus, we can look at, the, at his precious blood and say, that blood for my blood. His life for my life. And if you look down at verse 20, we see it's so much more than just a transaction. But you see, if we look at it as just a trade-off, it can feel kind of cold, like a deal by two unaffected people. But the whole scenario was set up because of his deep love for you. Look at verse 20. He was made manifest, he came for the sake of you. And he had you in mind because of his deep love for you. He offered himself as the ransom payment needed. His life for yours. If that's not grace, unmerited, generous, given to us in love, reminding us of both the love of our Father and the love of Jesus, his Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit, like if that's not grace, I just don't know what is. In Psalm 34, the Lord, he, God claims the Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. And there was once a time when Peter looked at, looked at Jesus and heard him say that the Son of Man came not to serve but to be served. And to give his life, what? As a ransom, as a ransom payment for many. Listen, if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, I don't care what your life looks like right now. We're all struggling with a lot of things in our minds and in our lives. But this grace, this case for hope is given to you. It's the truest thing about you. Your sins are dead. It is It is the most robust gift that God has given his people. That his life for our life, his death is the death of your sin and the penalty it deserves. His resurrection is the promise of your new life in Jesus. Listen, when we talk about the hope of Christ, nothing is off the table. Past, present, and future... Your past is resolved in Christ. Your present is anchored right now in Christ who never leaves you. And your future is assured in Christ. It's all in Christ. You want to know what your case for hope is? It's what Jesus has done for you and what he promises for you. And those things are not changing. The only question left for us is how, how does hope invade every part of our life? 
What does it look like for you and me, for our thinking, for our lives to be continually strengthened and shaped by the hope that we have? How do we cover these things with hope? There's a story I came across not long ago about a man who returned to America after fighting in the Vietnam War. Um, you can imagine the things that he saw, the things that he did, and, and uh, uh, I mean, you know, we're all familiar with stories like that. This man came back and decided he wanted to go straight to college, and so that's what he did. He went to a small school in, uh, in Illinois, and this college had a river running right through the campus. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if you're familiar with Illinois in the winter months, you know that it can get like, uh, awful. (laughs) And, uh, and every day during these winter months, he would go out to the river and he would take care of a covey of ducks and he would go out there and he would bring them food and give them bread because he knew it would be hard for them to find food. And he would even venture out onto the banks of this river and he would chop holes in the ice so that they could find some water to get to every day. No matter how cold it was, that's what he did. You can imagine some of these students uh, took notice of, uh, of what he was up to and they asked him, uh, they asked him, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he told them a story about a time when he was in Vietnam and his unit had been ambushed and it was really bad. And he lost friends. And the enemy was coming and what happened was he laid down amongst his fallen friends to act as if he was dead, that they might, that they might pass. And as they were coming forward, they were coming near him, making sure that people were dead. And as they almost came right up to him, a covey of ducks flew right overhead. He could hear it, their wings fluttering. And because they were so hungry, they chased those ducks. And they shot the ducks instead of shooting him. That's how he escaped. And he spends the rest of his days going to care for and to look at the thing that saved his life. He loves ducks because he lived. And he goes, he can't, he can't get enough of looking at ducks. If you're looking to fill your mind with hope, look at Jesus. You won't find the hope that you need anywhere else. If you're hoping to be liberated from all kinds of things, I'm going to call you, just look at Jesus. There's always reason to be afraid. Fear runs counter to hope. There are always reasons to be cynical and, uh, and afraid. And to hide. But there's one great reason you don't have to. You can look at Jesus. The one who gave his life for yours. The case for your hope. But what will this look like? Peter offers us two simple ways I want to name before I'm done here. About the ways that hope results in our life. These are the results of hope. And the first is simply earnest love for each other. Earnest surpassing, sacrificial, giving, and generous love for each other. Verse 22, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's really 
It's, it's actually really hard to do. It's much easier to love one another, love each other earnestly from an impure heart, isn't it? Like we know what that looks like. But he calls us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Once he shows us how deeply we are loved, he then calls us to love each other. That he binds us to, to uh, we are first bound to God by love and then he binds us to each other in love. Now just think about that for a second and what that might mean for our church community here. Can you think of a better way to bear witness in the world to who Christ is than seeking to continually become excellent at caring for each other? That we love each other in the way that Christ loved us? I've got a friend who became a Christian that way. That's how he met Jesus. That's he walked into a church because he saw their community and how they took care of each other. And he said, I don't understand what they believe, but it's really amazing how they love each other. That's how he met Jesus. He first saw Jesus' love in, in God's people, and then he met Jesus' love for, for, for himself. That's the call. That's the missional call. And it's a good one. It serves us and it serves those around us. And you might say, how is that possible? What do I have to give? Well, he tells us, Peter tells us, it's by remembering the words of God that anchor us in grace. The grass, the grass falls and the flower fades. All flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news, the gospel truth that was preached to you. And he tells them that everything you heard from me, every bit of teaching is right in line with everything that this book says. Listen, we move toward each other because of our hope. And we continue to move toward the words of this book because of our hope. You know why? Because our hope needs to be refreshed all the time. Hope is hard. Hope requires courage. And so we, he is telling us that we need to continually look back to where we find our hope. And he's saying the word of God is what's given to us that reminds us that this is true. Listen, this is the greatest condensation of God's glory and revelation to you in your life. It's the most trustworthy thing that you can turn to with your hopes and your fears. If you, if, you are, if you need to be reminded, as we all do, how deep the Father's love for you, then we need to turn to this book together. If we need to be reminded, as we so often do, of what Christ has done for us and what he promises to us, then, then we need to turn to this book together. That's, this is what we need. God's word is permanent and unfailing and it stands forever. If that weren't true, then his promises wouldn't be reliable, is it? And so he gives us his word where he demonstrates for us over and over and over again just what he's willing to do to save his people. And then Jesus is the word that became flesh, that made his dwelling among us, and it was through his words given to us that we are redeemed, that we are ransomed, that we are saved. May his love be our love, and may his strength be our strength. 
And may his resurrection be our hope in this life and in the next one. Hope is calling. Can we hear it? Let me pray. You are the author of hope. So I pray you would give us hope. And let that hope lead to holiness in our lives. Help us to continue to go strong in remembering the grace that's been given to us. And let that grace continue to fill our lives, extending out to each other and to the world around us. Strengthen us with this hope. And help us to believe that these things are true. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.